All right, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary, and we're really reaching that climactic moment in the Gospel. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 49, and it is this moment where Jesus is led away to be crucified, with the trial reaching its resolution and Pilate yielding to the will of the Jewish leaders. We now follow Jesus out to the hill for crucifixion. And Luke's presentation is incredibly brief and focuses really on, even though it's a story, it focuses on the theology of Jesus' crucifixion. And that theology is ironically stated by the leaders themselves and by one of the criminals who was crucified along with Jesus. And that theology is summed up in the line, they say, he can save others, but he can't save himself. And not only that, Luke's presentation, brief though it is, also focuses on the meaning of the cross and the crucifixion for disciples, which is embodied by Simon of Cyrene, who took up the cross and followed him. And so here is Luke's presentation of Jesus' crucifixion that embodies in narrative form both the theology and the significance of the cross for followers of Jesus. Here's the way Luke tells the story. Verse 26 of Luke 23. When they led him away, when they, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, as he was coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Cyrene was in North Africa in the region of modern-day Libya. And so Simon is certainly an out-of-towner, likely visiting Jerusalem for the feast. And they seize him, it says, and have him carry the cross. They place the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. And that means not the whole cross, but the cross beam, the part that the arms would be attached to. Uh, usually the upright piece of the cross was already in the ground at the place of crucifixion and the condemned person carried the cross beam to that place to be uh, set on top of it and then hung from there. And for whatever reason, they commandeered Simon to carry it for Jesus. Perhaps because Jesus was struggling to carry the cross beam, it weighed uh, quite, it was quite heavy, 40, 50, 60 pounds or more, sometimes upwards of 70, 80 pounds, even 100 pounds. And so perhaps it was just because Jesus was struggling carrying it because of the weakness that he is now experiencing, maybe because of being scourged, the other loss of blood from other events of the night. Although Luke doesn't tell us uh, about Jesus scourging here. He leaves that out. But for whatever reason, Jesus is struggling, it seems, to carry the cross beam. And so they commandeered Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. And I suspect Luke found this picture so paradigmatic of discipleship and thus presented it here for that reason, to follow Jesus is to be like Simon. It's to take up the cross and follow Jesus just as Simon does. And, and so Luke begins his presentation of Jesus' march to the, the hill for crucifixion with that image. Not only that, he tells us there's other people following him as well. Look at verse 27. Now following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and grieving for him. So you have this, this large crowd of people around him, and you have women wailing and mourning. You need to picture 
uh, if you've seen it on the news or in other places, the the typical Middle Eastern wails of lament and expressions of grief. That's what we have described here. And so these women are wailing out loud and they're mourning for him with very loud and verbal uh, expressions of grief. But Jesus, verse 28, turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. I think we need to hear Jesus speaking in this, these words with compassion. Though the words he shares are words of warning and woe, it's a prophetic lament born out of compassion, similar to that that we see in Luke chapter 13. They are weeping for him, but he says, Oh, worse days are ahead for them and for their children. In fact, he goes on to say, It'll be so bad, it'd be better not to have kids. Listen to verse 29. For behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are those who cannot bear, and the wombs who have not given birth, and the breasts that have not nursed. In a culture in which a childbearing and child rearing was a high honor, and in which childlessness was a cause of great shame, Jesus' words here are shocking, and they speak to the horror that lies ahead for Jerusalem and for its citizen. No women should have to go through that. No children should ever have to experience that. No mother should have to watch their child endure that. That's the, the sense of these words that Jesus is saying here, because he knows the collision course that Jerusalem is on with Rome, and he knows what lies ahead. He's already warned his disciples of that in Luke 21, right? And so he knows this, and it's that context, it's that future experience that's coming that Jesus really born out of compassion, giving this sense of lament and words of warning and woe for. He goes on and actually alludes to an Old Testament text that tells us how he understands these events. He says in verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. And this echoes Hosea chapter 10 verse 8. And, and there in Hosea, it's in the context of Israel, the northern kingdom, being destroyed by the Assyrians as judgment on Israel for her idolatry and her unfaithfulness to God. Well, those hearing Jesus say these words would, would hear the echo. They would know that Old Testament context. They would recognize what Jesus is getting at and that he is saying the horrors that are coming that he's warning them of will likewise be judgment for their disobedience to God. And it'll be so awful that people will wish the mountains would fall on them and bury them, that the hills would fall on them and bury them. And then he says something a little enigmatic, a little unclear, but I think we can get the overall point in verse 31. He says, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And what makes this a little unclear is exactly you know, the referent, what is it referring to? What's the green tree? What's the dry tree? And things like that. And yet, even though it's a little bit unclear, I think we can get the overall point. Do these things uh, is referring to what's being done to Jesus, handing him over, calling for him to be crucified, even though he's a righteous and a good man. They, if they do these things, that's a little unclear. Is it the Romans? Is it the Jewish leadership? Is it both? Not totally clear. I tend to think it's referring to the Jewish leadership because the way Luke has presented the story, really the way all the gospel writers present the story, 
they work in league with the Romans, but they're the ones that force this issue. And Luke has certainly presented it that way. And so I think that's probably the primary force of they here. So if they, probably the Jewish leaders, do these things, handing over a righteous good man for claiming to be the king of the Jews when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And what he seems to be getting at by the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry is, in AD 30, it was still relatively, even though they were under oppression, it was still a fairly healthy time to be a Jew, right? And so a green tree versus a dry tree is a living and vibrant versus dead or dying and drying up. A dead tree burns much easier than a green tree, right? That's why we dry firewood. A green, alive tree holds way more usefulness and value than a dead tree. So if they're willing to crucify a good, innocent, righteous person when things are green and alive, how bad will it be when Jerusalem is clearly dry and dead? That seems to be the force of this statement. So these words of Jesus, this whole little section here, is really a prophetic warning about the Jewish revolt and the ensuing war with Rome and the horrors that would come about as a result. And we need to remember these words are spoken as Jesus is being led out of the city on his way to the hill of crucifixion. And so we we're in the midst of that, and there's this crowd following him, these women following him, they're wailing and mourning, and Jesus, out of compassion for them, says, stop weeping for me. Things are going to get really bad for you and for your children. And then the story continues in verse 32. It says this, now, two others who were criminals were also being led away to be put to death along with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And once again, Luke highlights Jesus's innocence, this time by pointing out that there were two others who were on the road with him heading to be crucified, but they were criminals, unlike Jesus. That's the, the force of that. Two others who were criminals, uh, there they crucified him and the criminals and this is a way of highlighting the contrast between them, who really are criminals, and Jesus, who really is in innocence. And the brevity of this in all the Gospels, and certainly here in Luke, has always like hit home with me. It simply says, there they crucified him. No need to say more. The original readers knew. They could see it because the Roman practice of crucifixion was to crucify people at the most visible public place they could find, at a crossroads, at some place where uh, everybody would see it because it was a way of issuing a warning to the populace to say, this is what happens to people who, who dare to, to go against the authority and the power of Rome itself. And so there they crucified him. And everyone reading in the first century could picture the agony and the awfulness that was crucifixion. And so, as Jesus hung there, slowly dying, how did he respond? Well, he didn't respond like so many of our typical heroes, uttering curses and threats. Just you wait till I come back in my glory. You better watch out. When I come back from this, I'm coming for you. There's no, I'll be back from Jesus, right? No, Jesus' way is different. It's way different. 
Look how he responds in verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And this saying is recorded only in Luke. And although it's in brackets because some of the early manuscripts don't include it, it seems to fit Luke's presentation of Jesus all throughout his gospel so well that it makes sense that this would be original here. Instead of a curse for those killing him, which was often the case for Jewish martyrs, right? Like those great heroes of the Jewish faith, uh, even from the Maccabean period and fairly recent Jewish history, right? In their day and age, there was curses upon those uh, who were killing them. And God will, will curse you. And instead of that, Jesus offers a prayer for their forgiveness. And the soldiers, well, what are the soldiers doing? Well, they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves, and the people, they stood by watching. In a crucifixion, the victim was stripped naked to add to the shame and the humiliation of the event. So he's naked, his clothes therefore are available, and the soldiers are playing games to see who gets what of his clothes. He's suffering in agony and dying, and they're playing games for his clothes, which speaks of how trivial and how callous human beings can actually be. And so as they cast lots for his clothing, the people stand by watching, and the Jewish leaders, well, they were mocking him. Look what it says. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And so in their mockery, they, uh, they assume that if he really is the Messiah, if he really is anointed and chosen by God, then he should be able to save himself. But ironically, they actually unknowingly stated the truth. He is the king. He really is the Messiah, the chosen one. And his will is to save others. And he actually in this moment is doing that. He is saving others, but he can't save others and save himself at the exact same time. And so here in this presentation, uh, Luke summarizes and, and puts the point of the cross here in the words of those mocking Jesus. And even the soldiers joined this taunt. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. That's bad wine, typically used by the poor in these kind of moments like this. So they offered him just bad wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. And so they join in this same form of mockery. And therefore, once again, state the truth. As the king of the Jews, his job was to save others, which meant he couldn't save himself. In fact, it's this being the king that is on the record of history as the thing that got him crucified. Look at verse 38. And now there also was an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. This inscription above him would have been the, the placard stating the charges for his condemnation. It's also in the theology of Luke's gospel and in the flow of the story. It's also Jesus' royal placard. Here, here is the king of the Jews and he is heralded as the king. And so from the trial right through to this point, Jesus' kingship has been the focus. The record of history shows that Jesus was killed for being the king of the Jews. And so his royal placard is also his criminal charge for his execution. 
even one of those hanging there and dying with him, one of the criminals, joins the same mockery. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so one of those being executed along with him joins in this same refrain of mockery. And in short, what he's doing is he's telling Jesus to do his job. If you really are the Messiah, then do what the Messiah is supposed to do and deliver us Jews from the Romans. If you're the Messiah, do your job and save yourself and save us. But again, he can't. As the Messiah, his job is to save others, and that requires him not to save himself. Verse 40 is the response of the other criminal. Look what he says. But the other responded and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice how this man defends Jesus by owning his guilt, owning his punishment, and acknowledging Jesus' innocence. And then he shows faith in Jesus by asking Jesus to remember him when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And so this man seems to, in this moment, pledge his faith to Jesus and seems to recognize that indeed he really is the Messiah. And so Jesus then says this to him in verse 43. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise derives from a Persian word for garden. It's actually used in some Jewish writings to refer to the Garden of Eden, and it came to be used for the place of eternal bliss. In fact, one uh, Jewish writing, 2 Esdras uh, 8.52 says, It is for you that paradise is opened, the tree of life planted, and the age to come prepared. And so when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's speaking in a well-known Jewish bit of imagery that says, we're going to enter the age to come where life eternal is, where the place of bliss is. And so Jesus is going to paradise today. And this man, though he's a criminal, can go there with Jesus because he's pledged his faith to him. Luke then resumes the narrative and says in verse 44, It was now about the sixth hour, that's about noon, and darkness came over the entire land until about the ninth hour. In other words, this is noon to about three in the afternoon. And so the first three hours, nine in the morning till noon, it was light out. But now for the last three hours of Jesus' time on the cross, it's dark uh, because the sun stopped shining. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil of the temple most likely refers to the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place was the place that the high priest went into once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that veil separated the outer portion of the temple and that most holy place, the place of atonement. And according to one rabbinic source, it gives us a little details as to the size of this veil. It was at one hand breadth thick. That is about six to eight inches, six to nine inches thick. It was about 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And so it was a large, massive veil and it was torn in two. 
And so symbolically, the veil being torn seems to symbolize that atonement has been made once and for all, as the book of Hebrews explains, that the way now into atonement is open for any and for all and for all time. And that's the way the book of Hebrews explains things. And that seems to be the significance of this event. What about the darkness? Well, we're not really told what the symbolic value of the darkness is. I just assume it's it's associated with the work of evil. Evil is being piled up on Jesus. In this moment, evil is doing its worst to the very of Son of God. Maybe it symbolizes God being hidden behind the darkness away from Jesus. We're not really sure of exactly the significance and the meaning of the darkness, other than that this is a powerful moment of atonement symbolized by the veil of the temple being torn in two. And so we need to picture Jesus hanging on the cross, laboring to breathe, slowly dying in complete darkness for the last three hours. And then at the last, knowing that death is at hand, Jesus musters his strength, musters his breath, and prays one final loud prayer. And here's what he prays, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And this is a line from Psalm 31, verse 5. It's a psalm of David and Jesus as the greater son of David, right? And so we have this parallel here. It's a psalm of David praying for deliverance. And I would suggest going back to Psalm 31 and then read it. Read it with Jesus on the cross in mind. Presumably during those six hours hanging there on the cross, this is seems to be one of the psalms he was meditating on, which is why in this climactic moment, he cries out a line from this psalm. Another psalm he seems to be have been meditating on while hanging on the cross was Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That line does not show up in Luke's version of it, but it shows up in the other Gospels. And so Jesus seems to be meditating on some of the Psalms while he's hanging there on the cross, praying them, taking them into himself and uh, praying them about him being delivered and God uh, delivering him as the righteous sufferer. And so Jesus cries out this loud prayer, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he died. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, this man was, in fact, innocent. A centurion was a key military officer of the Roman army. The title centurion means commander of a hundred. They were experienced soldiers. They were responsible for order and discipline. They were one of the most strategic officers in the Roman military. And so they, they were known to be a disciplined, responsible men. That's typically how centurions are described. And this centurion saw what happened, probably referring to the way Jesus died with the dignity, with the courage, with the care for the criminal and the prayer for forgiveness. And he concluded that Jesus was in fact innocent uh, of these charges. Literally that word innocent is righteous, that Jesus is righteous that really, in the context of Psalm 31 and Psalm 22, that's clearly on Jesus' mind and lies in the background of Luke's telling of the story, Jesus is really the righteous sufferer. Not just a righteous sufferer, but the righteous sufferer. And so this centurion says, this man was, in fact, righteous. He was just. He was a good, righteous man. 
Verse 48, all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, after watching what had happened, began to return home, beating their chest. And so the crowds who gathered and saw, uh, they went home with this sign of grief. And in some cases, even repentance, beating their chest like, oh, this is a sign of grieving and, and lamenting and even repentance in cases. And interestingly, we get the disciples next and we're not tone told of their reaction. Look at verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things, watching these things. And we're not told how they reacted, uh, only that they watched from a distance, which heightens Jesus's aloneness, which also may suggest their fear or perhaps their grief. It's hard to watch someone you love die, especially when you've seen the miracles, you've heard the teaching, and you were certain this one was the Messiah. It's hard to stand there and watch him die. And so they're standing at a distance watching these things. And that's Luke's story of Jesus' crucifixion. And let me just offer just a couple observations by way of reflection here. First, uh, this reflection on Jesus is the king. Luke wants us to know that indeed that's who he is. In fact, you have those four power-packed lines right in the middle of the scene repeat over and over again that Jesus is the Christ, the king of the Jews. And his crucifixion doesn't negate this. In fact, in a sense... This is his coronation day, publicly crowned, publicly heralded as king. Right there in his criminal execution placard, it says, here's the king of the Jews. And it shows us how Jesus used his kingly authority and power. He used it not to save himself, but to save others. He used it to lay down his life for others. And that's really the second bit of the reflection is um, that Jesus couldn't save himself if he wanted to save others. And Luke wants us to know that saving others meant this, that it was required for Jesus to lay down his life like this in order to save the criminal uh, with him and anybody else who's going to be saved. Luke highlights that Jesus was innocent and righteous. He wasn't suffering justly for his crime, but nevertheless, his suffering was absolutely necessary to save others even those who were convicted criminals like the man hanging on the cross.